As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Well, Alistair, you must be excited about this next book because we're going to be talking about the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, which you've already said is your favourite. And I'd imagine you're probably echoing many, many people's opinions of it being the favourite book of the Narnia series. Before we get to some of the themes, um, I just wanted to ask what your opinion was. On the first page of this book, we see a brief mention of servants. What are we to make of this? Or, or again, is it just a product of, of Lewis's time, do you think? I think we just, again, have to remember Lewis was in a particular historical context. Um, back in Belfast, his family had servants. Um, they would have servants uh, in college. They would have servants in many households. For example, um, think of um, you know housekeepers, gardeners, and so on. And in many ways, what Lewis is, is really talking about here is not necessarily a status symbol. It's just the reality of middle class life for many people at that time. So I think we just have to say this is part of the world that Lewis is describing. He's not endorsing it. He's simply saying, this is my world. Welcome to it. This story happens in this world. Now let's look at Lucy, who's clearly one of the key characters in this story. She's really quick to forgive Mr. Tumnus um, when when she finds out that he was trying to kill her all along and sort of take her to the White Witch. Um, Do you think there's a sense in which Lewis is implying that it's easier for children to forgive than it is for adults? It's very hard to to draw that conclusion because um, we just don't have enough evidence to to, to really make it as, as clear as we'd like. But certainly it, it is a noticeable characteristic that Lucy always seems to be able to um, see the other side of the story, you know, to, um, to, to, to be forgiving like that. Um, maybe what Lewis is doing here is really indicating that Lu- Lucy is his favourite character. I think that <laughs> might be it, that, that, that Lucy is kind of the embodiment of the virtues that Lewis would like to have, although I think the evidence suggests he didn't always have them. <laughs> <laughs> 
I suppose we see that of Lucy being kind of favourite character in the sense that actually it's often her that sees things first um, or sees things that no one else sees. How is it that only Lucy sees what's in the wardrobe initially, do you think? And what's Lewis trying to get across by by saying that? I'm not sure that um, we, we, we know exactly what is going on here, but you're right that Lucy very often is the one who sees things that others miss or who trusts people who others do not trust. And I think that uh, you could say that um, maybe Lewis is hinting that this is a person of spiritual discernment. In other words, um, is able to see things that others just miss. And then once others um, uh, kind of way catch on to them, they're very happy to follow. But L Lucy very often is the person who sees things or perhaps, if I'm put like this, um, brings things out. And again, uh, it's fascinating to think is Lewis thinking here of the women at the tomb because this is an important theme you know after Aslan's death where Lucy is plays a very important role in the um, aftermath of that and again I often wonder is that Lewis picking up on this theme from the gospels that actually you know they see something and others don't and th th there's something special about them whatever the answer is there's no doubt Lucy is a very important character in the line of which in the wardrobe Edmund is also a really important character but perhaps for the opposite reason of Lucy um, I, I think you know when you initially read it you, you sort of don't really like Edmund do you but I wonder if there's a sense are we meant to blame Edmund for his actions or there's a, a line where he basically says he's terrified um, to say no to the White Witch so is there a sense in which actually it's not really his fault that he behaves the way that he does well, what do you think Lewis would make of that? I think Lewis is um, developing his children's characters to embody certain virtues uh, and in Edmund's case unfortunately there aren't quite as many as you'd like and I think that <laughs> Edmund is, is portrayed rather as being weak as being gullible as being open to um, deception and I think that Lewis is not necessarily criticizing this he's simply saying look this is the way a lot of people are let's get used to it and let's see a what happens and b what can be done about it. So that, that, that is, I think, an important point to make. I don't, I don't think Lewis is judging his character. I think he's using his character to, in effect, make the point that all of us are prone to this kind of um, deception, whether it's a form of self-deception or deception by other people. And we've got to find a way of dealing with this. And also it has some very bad outcomes. And why do you think Edmund was pretending that Lucy had just made it all up when he'd actually been to Narnia himself? Do you think that's just about his pride? Um, or is there something deeper that Lewis is trying to get us to take from that. Well, one of the themes that we find in the fall narrative in the book of Genesis is the idea of deception. Uh, and I think that, you know, it may be that what Lewis is trying to do here is to bring out how important um, the idea of trust is and then that means that the idea of deception, breaking trust, is also very important precisely because it negates trust. And I wonder if Lewis is really trying to help his readers understand how important trust is and how easily that trust can be broken. And I think looking at Edmund, I mean, yes, he does some very silly, very naughty things, but you always have the impression he's redeemable. You know, actually, this, this is not necessarily because he's a bad person, it's because he's weak. And maybe there's something can be done about this. So if you like, um, you may feel you're angry with Edmund, but you can't be too cross with him for too long. 
Now, none of the Pevensey children initially believe Lucy. Um, Peter even says, of course, it's all nonsense. But how do we convince people that far-fetched ideas are true, do you think? Well, I think that the professor in uh, this story is really um, trying to make the point that if someone says they have seen something and you haven't seen it, and you're disinclined to believe them, then really you have to begin to look at two things. Number one, is there a character flaw? Is she mad? You know, is she prone to tell lies? Or is she prone to tell the truth? And anyway, what is the evidence for this in the first place? So if you like, the, the, the professor is behaving rather like Lewis himself, saying, look, you've got to check these things out. You may say, oh, I can't believe that. And of course, here he's talking about the cultural attitude towards God. You know, I can't believe that. But I think Lewis is really saying, look, we've got to look into this. You know, there are people who, who found something here they find to be true. We've got to look into this and ask, what is the evidence for this? And then he goes into this discussion about, um, you know, probable other worlds, which is quite interesting. But I think the key point here is that um, there's no good reason to think that, um, you know, uh, Lucy is prone to telling lies. Oh, he says that, doesn't he, that nothing is more probable than there being other worlds, which I guess in some senses is totally the opposite of today's sceptic, sceptical culture, which would, you know, clearly say that none of this stuff is true. So how do we make improbable things seem probable, do you think? What, what would Lewis say to that? I think Lewis's answer is to tell a story, to try and tell a story which shows that although they, this may initially seem implausible, actually when you follow through on it, um, it makes more sense than you might think. And of course, one of the things that Lewis very often pointed out was that telling stories, appealing to the imagination, is a way of, in effect, neutralizing the watchful dragons of rationalism. You know, this can't be right, so we're not even going to think about it. No, Lewis is saying, no, no, tell a story, it draws people in, they begin to explore it in an imaginative way, and realize actually it makes a lot more sense than you might think. So you might say that one of the things Lewis is doing here is offering a defense of the genre of storytelling in Christian apologetics. What do you think the professor means when he says that things that are real might not be there all of the time? Is, is there something in particular that Lewis has in mind when he has that in the words of the professor? It's hard to answer that. I, mean, I wonder, um, as I read those words, whether there's an echo here of... Um, the idea of the presence of God, you know, in, for example, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, which may be discerned, particularly at certain times, and other times it doesn't seem to be there at all. You know, is Lewis trying to say that actually there are times when this seems very real and other times when it does not? And of course, it may also be a, a very carefully woven allusion to my god my god why have you forsaken me you know that in effect we've got to be skeptical of the way we feel about things because actually our feelings may lead us astray um, you talked right at the beginning about conflicting worldviews and that being a, a big part of narnia and edmund says which which is the right side he's kind of articulating that question so how would lewis answer that question how how are we to know which is the correct worldview which is the right story to trust i think lewis is trying to make the point that we are culturally predisposed 
to buy into certain stories about who we are and what our world's all about. It, it's, all, it's all a thing that Charles Taylor talks about in the secular age, and Lewis does this very well uh, much earlier on. And Lewis is saying, look, um, a, a, a story may be dominant in our culture. It doesn't make it right. Uh, and it's a very important point. And Lewis is saying, check out the evidence. And bear in mind also that um, the word mad um, very often means out of sync with the culture of the time. You know, uh, it's, it's in effect countercultural. It, it's a very important point. I think what Lewis is trying to say to us, look, is evaluate a narrative, a worldview, not by whether it's trendy, not by whether, by whether it seems to be slightly weird or strange, but rather, is it right? And, and that, I think, is the thing Lewis keeps coming back to. The judgment has to be not, um, do I like this, or is this, um, is this, is this the, what everybody else thinks, but is this actually right? And one of the things Lewis is trying to do, I think, in The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular, is to say, look, our culture offers us multiple narratives. There are many understandings about this world, just as there are many understandings about Narnia. The question is, which is the right story? And we're being asked to choose it, and then enter into it and become part of it. Now, when the children are trying to figure out whether they should follow the beavers, um, Edmund asks how they know that they're nice, and Susan responds by, by saying, shan't we have to risk it? Do you think Lewis is implying that actually there's always a slight element of uh, risk when it comes to faith? Yes, I think he is. I think what, what Lewis is saying here is that um, with faith, you cannot prove that there is a God. You, you cannot prove that there is no God and therefore actually whichever of those decisions you arrive at is a matter of faith it's not proven and therefore there's an element of intellectual risk because you are you are buying into something you cannot prove to be true I think that's an extremely important point because very often you know atheists present their, their faith as if it were simply factual it's not it is a belief which goes beyond the available evidence so, in effect, what Lewis is doing here is echoing a point we find, for example, in the psychologist William James, which is very often we have to go beyond the evidence and make a commitment. But we're not mad in doing so. It's just that, that these questions demand answers. We have to say, I think this is the right answer for these reasons, but I'm taking a risk in going down that road. The alternative is you don't go down any road at all. How can Mr. Beaver tell that Edmund has already been in the world and already met with the witch? And do you think there's some sort of parallel that Lewis is trying to imply is true of our world as much as of their world? Well, Edmund, in talking, makes reference to one or two things that he couldn't have known about unless he'd been here before. And that's a really interesting question, because in Lewis's um, more academic writings, one of the things we find is almost this idea that, that we are recollecting the memory of paradise. It's a very interesting theme we find in Augustine, we find in many medieval and Renaissance writers who draw on Augustine. And maybe what Lewis is getting at here is actually um, 
we have these deep intuitions, which may be recollections or memories of a distant paradise, which keep coming back into the present, calling it to mind and inviting us to rediscover it. So actually there is something quite profound there. And I think very often we just, we just miss that because we're so interested in the story that we don't linger on it the way we should. We've already seen that, that Tolkien wasn't a big fan of Father, Father Christmas appearing in the Narnia stories. Um, but I suppose in some senses, do, does he maybe have a point? Because the newer atheists, they will often lump fairy tales and Santa with the, the Bible and belief in the existence of God and sort of dismiss all of them as false. So in some ways, is it a little bit confusing to have Father Christmas, who we're meant to believe isn't real, uh, but then the, the existence of God, who we are meant to think is real? I mean, is that a confusing thing? Is he sort of conflating stories there? I personally um, think this is unhelpful, I have to say. Um, but it gives Lewis one of his best one-liners, you know, <laughs> winter, but never Christmas. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's, that's a great line. And But I think more seriously, I think that the point that Tolkien was making is that this this seemed rather contrived. It didn't seem to work. It, it was artificial. And actually, I know exactly what he meant. It, it's a kind of... Um, it's 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 a kind of bringing together of two quite different genres, and and I think that the problem is really that you know Father Christmas is a kind of way a childish idea you grow out of. Uh, God is not a childish idea, although many children believe in God. It's something you can grow into, as I did, you know, discovering Christianity when I was eighteen. So I think that there's something very significant there. But I, I forgive Lewis for this because um, <laughs> I, I think it, it, it gives us a very nice uh, image to take away with us. How does Lewis think that we are to view God based on the character of Aslan? Because he describes him as good, but he also describes him as not safe. I think that um, uh, Lewis really wants us to see Aslan as a Christ figure. But of course, it's very, very the, the, the boundaries between God and Christ are very blurred. So in effect, it's quite, quite right to say this is actually talking to us about God as well. I think the point that, that um, Lewis is getting at here is something that actually he picks up, I personally think, from Rudolf Otto's book um, uh, about the holy. Uh, and in fact, Lewis comes back to that book. Um, he says this, this is the idea of the holy is one of these books you ought to read. And it's all about um, God being mysterious in the sense that it's frightening. You know, it, it's a deep mystery. It's not simply something cuddly. You know, there's, there's something of real depth there which overwhelms us. I think Lewis is trying to get at that. And in talking about God or Aslan not being tame, it's this idea it's not something we can master. If I tame a lion, I have mastered that lion. And the point that Lewis is making so clearly is that actually um, you can't tame God. You can't tame Aslan. You know, they, they are ones who, if anything, master us. I think that's a very interesting line of reflection because Lewis is saying that intellectually there's a real danger that we reduce God to human categories, whereas in fact our categories struggle to make sense of God. And Lewis is really saying we've got to take Aslan, God and Christ on their own level and realize we're never going to be able to, to master them in terms of the concepts we use to describe them properly. 
We see bravery as a key theme throughout the Narnia Chronicles, but there's a great line about Peter, which says Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick, but that made no difference to what he had to do. How does C.S. Lewis think that we are to be brave? And I guess, are there specific situations he had in mind where he thought we would need to be brave in the Christian faith? Well, it's very interesting because one of the points that Lewis is making here is that encountering Aslan has different effects on different people. You know, uh, some people f find themselves deeply consoled. Some people find themselves energized some people become brave and i think that in many ways lewis is bringing out the point that very often there are certain things that we feel we ought to be doing but somehow we can't do them we need somebody to transform us somebody to inspire us somebody to make us do this i think one of the points that lewis is bringing out here is that the presence of aslan transforms the children so that they're able to do things which by their natural power and in their natural state they simply wouldn't be able to do and again, you can see an obvious Christological reference there. But Lewis is also, I think, making another point, which is that maybe Christ brings to perfection certain traits or gifts that we already have to some extent, but not enough. And I think that, that's, that's an important point. Very often we have the desire to be this kind of person, but not the ability. We need someone or something to energize us and enable us to achieve that. So that is a theme I, I see throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, which is that actually people become who they're really meant to be or deliver what they're meant to be delivering, not because of who they are, but because something happens to them that inspires them and transforms them. The atonement and resurrection are obviously key themes that appear in this book. W I mean, what is Lewis's opinion of the atonement? Well, Lewis uh, frequently says that he, he doesn't really like the idea of theories of the atonement because he feels that that actually reduces something to something which is not really engaging enough or have sufficient existential depth. I think one of the points that Lewis is making is that actually stories are a better way of talking about both what the atonement is and the difference that it makes. So again, one of the things that Lewis is, wants us to see is what difference does Aslan's death and return make to the children, because that is a, a key element of, of Christian thinking about the atonement, not just the grounds of salvation, but the nature of salvation itself. And I think that's an important point. But there is one theme about the atonement in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which I find a little puzzling, I have to say, and that is um, the atonement only seems to have any relevance to one person. You know, if you think about it, who who is most dramatically affected by it? Well, only one person. Uh, and I think that, that really that, that, that can be expanded into a, a, a Christian understanding of it. But nevertheless, as Lewis presents it, it's not the full story. Now, I fully understand that it works well in the context of Lewis's narrative. But you sometimes feel that there's something just missing there. And what's going on with the resurrection? What's the deeper magic that Aslan's referring to? Is that meant to stand for something specific? Or again, is it just a kind of fictional motif? It is a fictional motif, but it's one that echoes um, some deep theological themes. And one of them is that God is able to um, override um, the circumstances which uh, might seem to human beings to mean that's the end of the story. And I think what Lewis is saying is that um, uh, 
we tend to view things from a purely human perspective. Aslan's been killed, he is dead. End of story. Except it's not. And Lewis uses this very powerful phrase, a deeper magic. And I, I think he wants us not to try and explain that, but to hold that phrase in our imaginations and let us you know, reflect on it. Because he's saying there is more going on than you can see and you can understand. And this is all about, first of all, what happens to Aslan, but secondly, what happens to you as a person. You've got to realize there are things going on here which you can tune into, but not be able to explicitly uh, articulate. And I think that that's, that's something that, that Lewis brings out in his other writings, that in effect, this idea of mystery. We're part of this mystery, and it's very exciting, but we don't fully understand it. So I think that's really what he's getting at there. Once the children come back from Narnia, the professor says to them, don't mention it to anyone unless you find that they've also had adventures of the same sort themselves. I mean, do you think Lewis is suggesting that people shouldn't share their faith or do you think there's a different meaning to what the professor's saying there? It's a very interesting question. Um, I wonder sometimes if Lewis is referring back to the Gospels, particularly Mark, where very often uh, Christ will say, well, he does a miracle and says, don't tell anyone. You know, is, is that what Lewis is getting at? Or is Lewis getting at something else which may of course be, be relevant, which is that if you were to tell other people about this, well, they might say, huh, it's just a story. They wouldn't get it. And the problem is you get it when you experience it. See what I'm saying? I think one of the things that Lewis is saying is that if you're trying to describe an experience such as you know, being healed by Aslan, Nobody's going to make sense of it except for somebody who themselves has been healed by Aslan because they'll say, I know just what you mean. They can resonate with that. So it may be that that's what Lewis is getting at here, that actually um, you can try to explain this to other people, but actually really it's only going to work effectively with those who know this experience and the difference it makes. Do you think it's intentional that the story doesn't finish in Narnia, it finishes in the children's world? Is Lewis trying to say something about that, you know, sort of grounding it in reality? I think the story finishes in the children's world for two reasons. One is because their existence in that world will never be the same again. They've been transformed by their encounter. And that's a, that's a point that Lewis keeps coming back to. Um, to encounter Aslan is to be transformed. Even when you go into a mundane reality, it's different. It's special. But I think the second reason is this. Because maybe Lewis knows he's going to keep the story going. And therefore the question is, what happens next? Well, we will be looking at what happens next in the next few shows. But Alistair, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we will be looking at The Horse and His Boy. <laughs>